anticipation. You've all felt it. We've all felt it. That sense that every single cell in your body is focused on, on one specific thing. It may have been an event that you were looking forward to. It may have been a, a special vacation, a trip, something. But something that you knew was going to happen and you were so focused on that. When my kids were younger and we lived in the Dallas area, we had season passes to Six Flags. And so the, the days that were Six Flags days, there was a great sense of anticipation in our house. You know, when are we going to go? When are we going to go? One of the things that I've enjoyed here in doing some premarital counseling is hearing the engagement stories. How did, how did he propose? And imagining that sense of anticipation on his part, hoping that the answer would be yes, you know, on her part, thinking that any day this could happen, this could, this proposal could happen, but we've all felt that sense of anticipation, that looking forward to something. Today, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, marks a different kind of sense of anticipation for us. This marks the first day of Advent, and throughout the, the centuries, the church has come to recognize the, the four weeks before Christmas as a time of preparing our hearts to think about our faith and to be really ready when we come to the holiday, the holy day, the holiday, to, pre, to be able to celebrate it maybe in a, a way that's a little more, a little more deep, a little more joyful. Um, when, you, when you think about an Advent, when you participate in Advent, it gives you a way to focus through the month of December. One of the things that I have found is that it really gives you a solution to the problem of a secular Christmas versus a spiritual Christmas. You, you guys all know what that is. Spirit, Christmas is, is the holiday when we focus on the incarnation, the Word of God made flesh and come to dwell among us. But the draw, the powerful draw of the, the secular traditions, which are fun and make memories and, and give life to the month, can really be overwhelming. The parties and the presents and the elves on shelves and trying to put things together that have really sketchy instructions and it's hard to do. We can come to Christmas Eve and realize that we've just really only paid lip service to preparing our hearts for Christmas because we've been very occupied with the secular part of the holiday. And like I said, those are fun and they build memories. But in Advent, in celebrating Advent and observing Advent, you can find a way to balance that with preparing your heart. Um, I went to Pinterest and was gonna pull up an, an example of uh, an Advent calendar. Lots of people use these and realized there are thousands of Advent calendars on Pinterest. But if you have a family, younger children, this could be a really great way to help your family focus throughout Advent on Christmas. You have, um, you know, the calendar and you open a little slot or open an envelope or whatever calendar you use and read a scripture with your children and create a memory, create something to help prepare their hearts for Christmas. You go that, through that up from, from December 1st through Christmas Day, 
and you've incorporated the gospel, you've incorporated the spiritual aspect of Christmas in with everything else that you're doing throughout Advent. Some folks use an, an Advent wreath, which normally has four candles that represent hope and joy and peace and love and light one of those every week as they go through Advent. We are doing something here as well to maybe help you a little, a little bit to focus, which is a devotional reading through the month of December. These are on the table with communion later. They are back at the communication center. But you might want to use that to focus your devotional time throughout the month. And maybe by December 24th, when we gather in this room again for Christmas Eve service, you'll find that, that the celebration is a little deeper and your joy is a little more wholehearted because you've observed Advent and helped prepare your heart for the birth of Jesus. Well, the first Sunday of Advent is centered on hope. That's what we're going to talk about today. One of the Hebrew words that we have translated into English as the word hope means to be stretched out toward. When I heard that definition, when I learned that, I had some really vivid mental images just immediately. And I love that context. Hope is to be stretched out toward. And the first thing actually that came to mind happens here on Tuesday and Thursday morning. Pastor Matt brings little Easton in for preschool, but he comes through the office to bring him in rather than going through the, the hope door. And when Easton comes in, his little arms are stretched up to give every one of us in the office a hug. He is stretching towards something that I know in his little 19-month-old heart, he is confident will happen because it does every single time. He gets picked up and loved on and kissed and just made over. But that's the first thing I thought of when I saw the definition of hope as being stretched out toward was Easton stretching his arms out for a hug. There are also images that come to mind of athletic kind of things. Did you watch the Olympics and see Gabby Douglas on uh, uneven bars and, and all that she did? That being stretched out toward, that was one of the images that came to mind for me. All the work she does, all the preparation, and then she gets up on those uneven bars and is doing those amazing feats, but stretching out to grab that bar between each of them, stretching toward that. I also had a, a mental image of baseball. And this particular young man is a, a college sophomore playing. He's hoping to catch that ball. He is stretched out toward that. He's done a lot of work and preparation to be at that point, but he is hoping to catch that ball. He is stretched out toward it. And then the last image that came to mind for athletic things was actually my son, Alex. He played keeper for his soccer team, and he was stretched out trying to block that ball from going into the net. He was hoping to block that kick. So that's the context I want you to have for the word hope this morning, that being stretched out, movement, action, because hope is a verb. You remember in, in school, you learned your parts of speech and a noun is a person, place, or thing, and a verb is what? An action word. Hope is an action word. And what you believe 
about the future, what you hope for, what you stretch out towards will be visible in your life. It will shape you. What you hope for, what you hope about the future will shape you because hope is a verb. It's an action word. It's going to do something. It's going to be visible. The transforming story of Christmas is shot through with hope. You can hear it in the words of the prophets and the psalmists in the Old Testament. We've got a lot of scriptures from Isaiah in this devotional reading. For unto you a child shall be born. Lots of hope we hear in the prophets and the psalms. You hear it in the words of that young teenage girl as she says, May it be unto me as you have said. What a statement of hope. May it be unto me as you have said. You hear it in the words of the angels saying, Glory to God in the highest. On earth peace, goodwill towards men. Because at that moment, the kingdom of God slices through time and space and physics and biology and everything that God created to become one of us, to become flesh, to be born in a stable, to go from a stable to a cross, to a tomb, to walk out of that tomb. All the story of hope. And when you look at the stable to the cross, to walking out of the tomb, that's the good news. And the good news changes everything. The gospel changes everything. When Jesus Christ grabs your life, everything changes. Scripture tells us we actually become a new creation, a new creation with a new hope, a life-transforming hope, a life-transforming hope. And we human beings are shaped by what we hope. We're shaped by what we believe. And so we're going to start Advent, start this first Sunday of Advent, talking about hope our hope, not necessarily just the hope of those prophets and psalmists. They wanted to see the Messiah. And we know the Messiah has come and died for us and rose again. So what is our hope? The story continues and you're, you're now part of it. You're now part of this story. So what do you hope for? What is our hope? What do we stretch out toward? There are several texts of scripture that are associated with Advent, with the first Sunday of Advent. And I've chosen one of those for us to talk about today as we look at hope in the context of stretching out towards something, of it being active and visible. We're going to go to Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, 
not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Those words are as true today as they were when Paul wrote them. Because for a follower of Christ, our ultimate hope is in his return. Paul reminds us with these words that, that we live in a tension. We live in, a, in an anticipation. And it's, being, it's living in this in-between time when the, the kingdom of God has grabbed us and we have stepped into that. But our hope is in his return, in the promise of the completion that happens at his return. We're, we're in this tension. And so do we, what do we anticipate? The ultimate hope of your heart determines how you handle your now. That's a quote from Leonard Sweet. And we're actually going to use one of his books in January when the next 242 groups start. This is from a book called Jesus Manifesto. The ultimate hope of your heart determines how you handle now. As followers of Christ, our ultimate hope is in his return. That's what Paul is referring to when he says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The New Testament speaks a lot of the return of Christ. 24 of the 27 books say something about it. There are 300 references in 260 chapters. For those of you math people who wanted numbers, there you go. Those are some statistics for you this morning. And Jesus himself spoke of his return in very graphic and compelling language. The promise of his return is the promise of everything being set right. Where sin has destroyed and turned inside out and upside down and twisted and scarred. The promise of his return is the promise of everything being totally set right and restored. The language of salvation, the language we use in talking about salvation is the language of returning to the original, to be redeemed, to be put back in the possession of the original owner, to be redeemed, to be restored, for relationships to be put right, to be put back as they were meant to be. The language that we use when we talk about salvation and, and life as followers is about setting things back to the original, to God's plan. And the promise of his return, our hope in that, our anticipation of that, is a stretching towards that, that total completion. So what does that look like every day? If, if hope is a verb, if we're looking at it in the context of it being a stretching out toward what does that look like day in and day out for us? Sometimes it takes a significant event in our lives to make us really look at them closely. We call that a wake-up call. It's what, what Paul's doing here. 
says, wake up. Because he's writing to the, the believers in Rome. People like you and me, I mean, just like you and me, living in a place that was a center of power, but was decadent and had an expectation of what was normal that didn't align with what Paul is trying to talk to these folks about. He's writing to folks who were just like you and me. And he says, let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. Let us walk. Paul, Paul often uses the word walk to talk about how we live our lives. A couple of cases he uses the word run. But he uses walk to talk about what it looks like day in and day out to live your life as a believer. This is interesting. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. What we see there are three different sets each set having two components. Do you see that? Not in carousing and drunkenness, sexual impurity and promiscuity, and then quarreling and jealousy. So let's look at those as sets for just a second. The first set, carousing and drunkenness, it's very public behavior. It's very public sin. That's the, that's the behavior, those are the choices, that's the sin that sets the culture in a community. That community may be your home, it may be your workplace, it may be your neighborhood, but those public sins, those setting, setting the kind of the lowest bar, the common denominator in, in who we are as a community are those public things. And he's obviously talking specifically about carousing and drunkenness. But any of those public sins that fall into that, that set the tone, that set the culture for where we live. The second set he talks about are sexual impurity and promiscuity. Those are private sins intimate sins that can wound people. We wound each other to the soul in those sins, with those sins. And they may be things that other people would never know, but they're very intimate, private sins that cause great, great damage. And then the third set are attitudes that come from the heart, quarreling and jealousy. Things that, that come from how we see ourselves, how we view other people, what our perspectives are about relationships. And these for sure can, uh, can be hidden away. And jealousy is something that, that can eat away at you but the folks on the pew beside you and the chair beside you may not know that you're dealing with that. So we're looking at three very specific sets of sins that he's talking about. Public ones, private ones, 
and things from the heart. When you walk in the light, as he tells us to do, there are, there are characteristics of that that are going to be visible. And it's interesting that here he's kind of pointing out those characteristics by telling us what they're not. And it's not those public and private and attitude of the heart sins that are characteristic of walking in the light. You know, scripture tells us that we have been captured from the kingdom of darkness and set in the kingdom of light. That happened when you stepped into the kingdom of God. You were captured from the, from the kingdom of darkness. And so these deeds of darkness that Paul is talking about, these, these sins, these deeds that may have been your default go-to are no longer your destiny and they no longer define you when you live in the life of Jesus Christ, when you live in the power of Jesus Christ. So if those are the characteristics that don't reflect a life of hope, because if you remember at the beginning, he said, our salvation is nearer than it was when we first believed. That ultimate hope in Christ's return is nearer than when we first believed. If that is the case, then what does our life look like? If it doesn't look like this, what's it going to look like? He says, make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. Earlier in that scripture, he said, put off, put off. If he's telling us to put off, it must be something that we can do. Does that make sense? He's not going to tell us to do something that is impossible for us to do. And when you are a follower of Christ, that is where you find the strength and the power to do the putting off. He says, make no plans, make no provision, one version calls it, to satisfy the fleshly desires. I know a guy, he's a friend, who is the ultimate outdoorsman. We have joked in our family sometimes that if there were ever any kind of nuclear attack or some sort of natural disaster, we really hope we're around Greg Armstrong when it happens because he will be able to survive anything. I've never met anybody like him in my life. He uh, an avid outdoorsman with an incredible respect for the outdoors. And he has told adventures of being stuck in blizzards for days as he's been out hiking in the mountains. And he wears a jacket out of um, deer skin that he skinned and tanned and did it all himself. He's, he's a, what he can do in the outdoors and survive is amazing. He did a run from the Alabama state line to the Kentucky state line to raise money for um, a project that he's involved in. He's devised a way, a, a very inexpensive way to clean water and provide those to areas of the world who don't have clean water. Incredible. But when he talks about 
packing his backpack for these adventures. He's, he's called it, you know, getting his provisions ready. And he puts in his backpack the things that he thinks he's going to need in this particular adventure or this particular project. And I thought of that when I read that, that version that said, make no provision for fleshly desires. I thought of him packing his backpack of the things he thought he was going to need you know, and shouldering it to, to trek off. And I think for us, because we live in this tension, we live in this in-between time, I think sometimes when we lose our focus, when we lose our focus on Jesus, when we lose our focus on who he is and who we are because of who he is, I think that's when we pick up that backpack with the provisions that we think we're going to need. And often those provisions are some of those kind of sins that he talked about earlier. Because in your past, when you were that old man, your default mode or your plan B, or plan A at that point probably, when you were lonely or hurt or stressed or anxious or confused or feeling less than was to go to some of those behaviors because for some period of time that made you feel a little bit better. That sort of anesthetized whatever that feeling was or that situation was that you were trying to deal with. And because we're in that in-between time, we're in this tension, we still know about that default mode. We remember that there were moments that that seemed to satisfy us. And it's very tempting to pack those in the backpack, to carry around, to be your plan B. And we go to plan B, we go to that default mode. I know you've got all in, in working with your computers at some time, have had it crash and it comes up with a little message, do you want default settings, you know? We can go to those default settings in that old man because we're living in this tension. And Paul says, don't make provision for that. Don't have those things in your backpack to go to. I think in Christ, you don't have a plan B. Because you live in his life and in his strength. And so the stretching toward in hope is that focus on who he is. And that stretching toward in hope is because, because we're in this in-between time. His promised return is not here. We may see it, we may not. But when you have stepped foot into his kingdom, you're part of this. You're part now of showing the world what that's going to look like when it comes. And so rather than carousing in drunkenness, joy and kindness and compassion are your public behaviors. 
are what the world sees from you. It's what is going to set the tone in your family, in your workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood. Not plan B. As a follower of Christ, preparing through Advent season to celebrate his birth, where sexual intimacy, promiscuity was a way to satisfy a need, you show to the world that intimacy is a reflection of God's relationship with us, the care, the nurturing that's involved in marriage is a reflection to the world of what completion is going to look like when it comes, when he returns. And rather than quarreling and jealousy, to love each other, to get up on Christmas morning and take socks to homeless people, to work for justice for people who, women and children who are being trafficked. There is a lot of love to be shown to the world. And we're called to do that in this in-between time. What you're shaped by, what you look toward, what you stretch out to, is shaping your life right now and will reflect to your home, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, what your ultimate hope is. Because your ultimate, the ultimate hope in your heart is going to shape your life. It's going to define how you handle the now. And so we start Advent talking about hope, reflecting on what do our lives show? What are we stretching out toward? And that's my question this morning. Kind of like, like Paul said, wake up, look at your life, look at your heart, and what are you stretching out toward? What are you working day in and day out to reach? Where is your hope what is your ultimate hope? In Philippians, Paul says something else. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus until he returns. Until there is shalom, perfect wholeness, perfect completion when everything is restored to the original owner in the condition that he created it. And I love that this Sunday, on the first Sunday of Advent, as we look at the stable and think about the king on the cross and the savior who walked out of that tomb and we prepare our hearts over the next 24 days to come back together to celebrate his birth, that today we can remember all of that and we remember the sacrifice and we remember the power of the resurrection 
that puts us in this in-between time, that puts us in this tension, but that we are part of showing the world what the ultimate hope is going to look like.